let's, uh, let's look at the second of the 10 words. This, we're, we're looking at the 10 commandments as, uh, as being a highlight in scripture. It's the only time that God audibly spoke and wrote with his finger, he wrote these 10 words. There's something unique about them that requires us to pay special attention to them. And I have been excited. I've been working on this um, series for a number of different reasons. I already taught it in Phoenix, and I'm now recording. I'm doing 11 hours of teaching on the Ten Commandments as we speak, and then now we get to look at it in our church as well. And I've been saturated in this, and I'm finding these words to be incredibly profound and, dare I say, prophetic for the time in which we live. That God is somehow speaking to us about what our priorities need to be in this time, particularly as we look at the revival that's going on coming out of uh, Asbury. I have my good friend Seth Trimmer, who's pastoring a church in Corvallis, Oregon. They have been having a fresh wind of the Spirit of God in their church, and they've been holding extra church services and seeing God move in power there. And uh, I don't see why Canada should be excluded from that. Amen. God wants to, God is the same spirit here as he is around the world. And I am excited to, to consider that one of the primary ways that we receive God's spirit is through repentance and faith. And so this is what we're looking at as we go through these Ten Commandments. Today we're looking at the second commandment, do not make God images. Exodus 20 verse 4 to 6 says this, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I the Lord your God am a jealous God in the best kinds of ways. Um, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. The first thing to note is that it is helpful to distinguish between gods and idols. For the longest time, as I read the Bible, it felt like they were basically talking about the same thing. It felt like gods and idols were kind of interchangeable terms and it didn't really matter which one you picked. Well, there's a, there's a huge difference between those two words. The best way to think about it is it's the difference between a nation and its flag. The nation would be the god, and the flag would be the representative of, uh, of that nation, and that would be the idol. So idols, during this time, were not considered to be gods. They were considered to be a flag that would point to the god in a physical, tangible kinds of way. You can't see gods, and so an idol would be set up as a representative of the god, and as you pray to that idol, you are actually praying to the god behind the idol. Uh, so it was an insult back then. You want to know what a, an insult was thousands of years ago? It was an insult if you would call your god an idol. Because it would mean that your god is, is, is just a stone or, or wooden figure. It was an insult. Psalm uh, 96.5 says, For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. It's saying those, those idols that you worship, or that signify worship, there's actually not really any kind of god behind that. They're as mute and as incapable of doing anything as that statue is. But the Lord made the heavens. 
Now, the challenge is, even though they knew the difference between a god and an idol, it's easy just to forget the god behind the idol and just to worship the idol because it's physical, it's tangible. It's more simple to say, look, I get that. I don't know everything that's going on in the heavenly realms, but there's a physical thing, and so I'm going to worship that. And this is the danger that we see when it comes to God. So after calling Israel to worship, that's the first command, First command is to worship God and him alone. God guards them against worshiping who they imagine God to be instead of who he really is. This for sure is the second biggest problem we have. The first biggest problem we have in life, believe it or not, is not economics. It's not who we're going to be marrying. It's not any, uh, the, the primary issue, it's not internal uh, confusion. Our primary problem in life is summarized as worshiping false gods. And our liberation from that oppression is to worship God, the only true God. Now, once we worship God, we have a second problem. We can end up worshiping who we imagine God to be instead of who he really is. We think, oh yeah, I get who he is. He's like this, this, and this. And so we invent attributes of God and worship those mental images of God instead of who he really is. So in Deuteronomy 12, 4, it says, you must not worship the Lord, your God, in their way. And their way was setting up idols. Don't do that. You're going to worship God in a brand new way, not through the medium of idols. Why? The primary thing that we do when we worship idols is we lose everything that is uh, magnificent about God. Because Every idol is made by human hands or human imagination. And there's no way you and I can capture the beauty or the splendor of who God is. Far beyond anything that we can imagine. I've mentioned in the past um, that I've been reading my, a, a book to my teenage boys, which is super weird. Uh, you don't, but I just wanted to, and so they're polite and they let me. Um, but uh, I, I was reading a, a book, and I just I thought it would be helpful to just read it out loud with them. And it's a book on NDEs, near-death experiences. And so this is uh, it's a thick book of people who have died and then came back to life and talked about what they saw on the other side of death. Super interesting. And the primary thing that they all say, these are Christians who have died and come back to life, is that uh, the, 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 the picture of God that they encountered uh, is beyond words. His, his beauty and glory and magnificence uh, leave you speechless. And so if we were to worship simply what we understand, we would miss all that's great about God. We would miss his, his beauty that left these people speechless. He's so magnificent. I don't know about you, but I, I figure that, you know, when I get to the pearly gates, as they say, when I get to heaven, uh, God's going to show up and say, you know, how'd you get in here? <laughs> I guess they lowered the bar. Uh, like, I, I get, you know, I get this feeling that if I get there, it's going to be a surprise for everybody. And they'll all, you know, wow, okay. I guess he, 
Like, it feels like it would be mostly a disappointment and I would apologize for getting in. And, uh, and what we see instead is a God who is overjoyed because of his mercy to welcome his children into the relationship that he's always longed to have with them. This is what God is like. And his splendor leaves you speechless. Oh, man. The, the other thing that needs to be said is that um, what we would lose is he would actually become useless. The God, as we talked about last week, if, if a God needs to be fed and carried around, not super helpful. If all God is, is as big as our imagination and something that we can carve, well, he's not a very amazing God. For God to be our Lord and for him to be our Savior, he needs to be far above anything that we could ever accomplish inside, uh, inside of human achievement. So we need God to be bigger and greater than anything that we could imagine. Bigger than an idol. So, uh, I haven't seen, at least recently, I haven't seen you, any, any of you carry around any little statues. I haven't seen that. Any little carved, you know, wooden figurines or um, something out of stone. What do we carry around as an idol? What do our idols look like? I don't think they look like little statues. What do they look like? They look like mental images, not physical images. They're mental images where we make God into our own image. We imagine what he would be like. And if you can imagine a, uh, a physical image, but, you know, we, 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 we carve something. I've done carving in the past. And, uh, you know, you carve something and you go, oh, I don't like that. And you change that. And, oh, I'd like to accentuate that. Or, like, you, you just make something up that you like. And so this is what we do in our heads. We, we make up things that we think God might be like. Worse yet, we carve these mental images out of painful experiences. And here's what I am mostly concerned about in terms of how we imagine God. You and I, everyone in this room, has gone through countless painful experiences. And what happens in those experiences is the enemy, Satan, taps us on the shoulder and says, you know what's going on, don't you? You know what's going on. You know that the primary reason why you have this painful experience is because God isn't who he said he was. He's not good and he's not great. I mean, you go, yeah, you know, come to think of it, if he really did love me, I probably would never go through any pain. If he really did love me, he probably would answer my every prayer. And so, huh. And what ends up happening is through mistrust and, dare I say, pride, we construct images of God born out of painful experiences that get interpreted demonically. And we have images of God where he's small, impotent, uncaring, and we carry these images around all day long, interpreting moments through these images that we imagine God to be. Why bother praying now? He didn't answer my last prayer. Why should I pray now? Why should I expect him to help in any way? In Titus 1.15 it says, To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, we're going to be looking at that idea of belief in just a moment, but to those who are corrupted 
and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. It's possible to have an image of God that's corrupted. What is the result of that corrupted image? Well, it's described in the verse that we read in Exodus 20. That not only does that corrupted image um, damage our own relationship with God, those images have the power to affect generations after us. Uh, we, we, we look at the, the significance of, of, uh, of this command that it's possible, and we see this, don't we, in, in nations that we would describe as being Muslim or Buddhist or, or there's pantheistic nations, animistic cultures, that somebody a long time ago had an image of God that they embraced as their own, their words and deeds expressed that, their children followed that, and now there's a nation that's living with a distorted view of who God is. It's possible. You and I have probably had to undo that, where we inherited views of God that might not have been accurate from our parents. So how do we get set free? What's the alternative to worshiping God through an image, even if it's a mental image? And here's the point. It's instead of worshiping him through a mental image, we now worship him through faith. 2 Corinthians 5.7 says we live by faith, not by sight. We don't simply live by what we saw in certain painful experiences and then invent a God to explain that. No, we go by faith to his word and hear what God would say about him. Our faith is not in who we imagine God to be. Our faith is in God's self-disclosure. He's told us who he is. We don't have to invent it. God becomes truly seen, not as an object, but through the eyes of faith. So to properly see him in creation in particular moments of life, we need his word. Romans 10, 17 says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The only way that you and I are going to be delivered from our false images of God is by the truth of God and believing in that truth and then overlaying that truth onto our painful or regular experiences and seeing those experiences in new ways through eyes of faith according to the truth of God's word, not what demons would try to have us interpret those moments as being about. Truth-based faith reinterprets painful experiences into new evidence. Here's what's remarkable to me. It's possible to have one experience be interpreted in opposite ways. It's possible to have a moment in life that felt so painful, it shook your relationship with God. That same kind of moment, believe it or not, has the potential to actually lead you into greater faith and worship. The same moment. What shapes our experience of life is not the moments themselves, it's what we believe about those moments. And if, those, if we believe that those moments are painting an image of God that is weak and impotent, then our life becomes painted with that. But if in those same kinds of moments we choose to see God in those places, now we worship him as Lord and Savior. What shapes our life, my friends, is not our life experiences, it's what we believe about them. And the only way that you and I will be set free from false images 
is to use scripture to interpret those moments and we become liberated from our deception. One of the primary things that I've had to work through for this to become true is to realize that God's agenda for my life is not first happiness. His first agenda for my life is to, is to, is to help me be in his image, which is to be loving. And that God designs life to help me become more loving, not always, at least at first, more happy. Happiness is a symptom of being loving. And so if I go through life and I say, well, that didn't make me happy, so God couldn't be there. Well, maybe he was actually trying to make you loving. And if you became loving, then you would get happy in a minute. The same moments become life-giving when they get reinterpreted according to the truth of God's word. Okay, now let's, uh, let's have a brand new thought and then we're going to combine the two. So we're talking about these mental images, false images. Okay, huge switch. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says something very, very interesting. It says that you and I are made in the image of God. You and I are image bearers. Listen to what Scott McKnight, he's a theologian, listen to what he says about this. This is absolutely fascinating. What is rarely observed is that the idols that God prohibits, say in Exodus 20, what we read today, are prohibited in part because God has made his own representative idols, humans, as God's icons. Icons, idols, same word. God made you and I to be his idols. He made us to bear his image. The reason why God forbids us making idols is he already did that. And if you look around, you know, we as them. Uh, we are the images that God made. He says, I already took care of that job. You don't make idols. I made idols. I made people to image me, to reflect me, to be my physical, practical representations of who I am. I've already given that job to you. Don't give that away to some mute mental image that you've created. Now, here's the ideas. Here's the idea. Um, God made us to be idols and not gods. The moment that you and I try to become God, the whole thing gets messed up. We're not meant to be gods. We're meant to be idols. We're meant to reflect God. Big, big difference. So one of the things that gods seem to do is they make idols. Um, Yahweh made us. Other false gods, they make idols. When you and I become gods, we also make idols. When you and I become gods, we also make idols. In, uh, in Galatians 3.28, Ephesians 2.14, and elsewhere, there are three big idols that humans make. There are ethnicity, our gender, and our economic status. When we think that we're God, 
And we remember last week, we worship the God of self. So we think that we're gods. What we do is we make our ethnicity, our gender, or our economic status a physical representation of who we imagine ourselves to be. And these representations, these earthly categories, are always far less than the heavenly category of God defining us. We now make idols to define us. Our ethnicity, gender, and economic status are descriptions of us. They must never be our identities. The moment they become our identities, they become idols. And as soon as we have idols, we start dividing ourselves against others in trying to puff up our own Godhead. I, uh, uh, so my, my grandparents on my mother's side came from Ukraine. My, uh, my father's family was Canadian for a few generations. They came from Scotland. Uh, but uh, we were closer to my, uh, my mother's side, so they came from the Ukraine. And uh, they moved to Saskatchewan because you got free land. Isn't that outstanding? Don't you wish that for, we could pray that for Vancouver. We'd all get free land. But they got free land, like, uh, uh, like parcels of land. It was amazing. They, they call them sections. Like not acres, like sections. I think they're 540 acres each or something. Anyway, so they get, so they, they come over. And then what happened in Saskatchewan at that time is every ethnic group started a village. And the ethnic group that, uh, that the Ukrainians started was called Gorlitz. It was just a small little uh, center for a farming community. And all the Ukrainians did business in Gorlitz. There was like three stores. And then uh, the village next to them was the German village. I married a German. I betrayed my ethnicity. And, uh, and, and then they just did business amongst themselves. And uh, I was told, I can't speak Ukrainian. I was to, I said food words. But I was told that, um, I was told by, you know, that my, my grandfather would say, I can spot a German a mile away just by the way he walks. That's what he would say. Sounds like a horrible thing to say. But, uh, but that's, what my, that's what my grandfather would say. Why? Because his identity was in his, in his ethnicity, and that required that he would make you an enemy, someone that he would hold in suspicion. Because what defined him was an earthly category, not a heavenly category that would all of us allow all of us to live in worship of God together. What is particularly relevant, well, our ethnicity is super relevant. We find ourselves, don't we, dividing over ethnicity uh, a lot these days. But what we also divide over is our gender. We invent ourselves according to our gender. And so we have people saying, who am I really? If I'm God, if I'm my own God, then I'm going to invent what my gender is. And that's going to be a, a physical representation of how I see myself. And so it would make sense that we would have gender fluidity as well as gender dysphoria, where we don't really know who we are anymore because we're trying to invent ourselves through the idols that we generate in our gender. We also do it, in a, I think perhaps more in the church, is the way that we idolize gender is according to being married or not. And my identity is in whether I'm married or not. 
or who I married. These things become identities that do not capture the image of God in us. The uh, one that has stood the test of time as well is economic status. That we make the, an idol out of economic status. Um, we define our worth according to the car we drive, according to the house we live in, according to the clothes that we wear, and their, um, what is it? You, there's a name for that, signaling or something? Did I say that right? I don't know. We, we try to, we, we show who we imagine ourselves to be by how we dress and the kind of car that we drive. This is an earthly category that does not deserve to define us. We're made in God's image. But, uh, you know, imagine how much time we spend polishing our car, and we should if it's our identity, because that's all we got going. So we might as well have a really, really nice car, because uh, that's as high as it gets. These are all false identities. They become idols that we worship. We get our identity out of them because we've forsaken being image bearers of God. You following me now? Did you follow that? So if God is our God, we reflect his image. If we're God, we use these other things to define us. Instead of being defined from above, we get defined from below. And those things are never adequate to define us, and they end up dividing us amongst one another because they're not worthy to be an identity. So what's the good news? The good news is the image of God that sin corrupted, Christ restores by uniting us to himself. The way that you and I get free from these false identities. Now, we never stop being, I never stop being Ukrainian, I never stop being male. I never stop having a certain economic status. God doesn't erase those things. We're just not defined by them. So I don't stop being those things, but they, don't, they no longer encapsulate who I am. Instead, my identity is found in my relationship with Jesus Christ, that as I am in him, listen to what it says in Colossians 1.15, the son is the image of the invisible God, that glorious God that nobody has words to describe. We get to be inside of that God and reflect him through our communion with Jesus Christ. This is absolutely incredible. We become like Jesus, not by having a list of behaviors that we should try to adopt. We become like Jesus by being in him, and we're so in him, he comes out of us in how we live and talk. One of the things that I think is very endearing about my wife, and she makes fun of herself, so I'll join in on that. Uh, one of the things that she does is whenever she goes um, traveling, <laughs> She takes on the accent of wherever she goes. So, um, yeah, it's very cute. Uh, so, she, you know, when I first met her, she, she, went to a, she went to Australia, New Zealand, and then she started talking like that, kind of. But she, she started talking like that, and she doesn't mean to. She's not trying to do that. It just comes out of her. And um, I go, you know you're talking funny. And she goes, and then anyways, it was very fun. Uh, What's really funny to me is we've had lots of uh, international students who live with us. And whenever international students live with us, she starts talking with an Italian accent. Most of the people who live with us are Asian, but uh, she has kind of an Italian accent. And she thinks 
they'll understand her better if she speaks with an Italian accent. Anyways, I'm not even going to try to, to mimic it, although it's very fun. Uh, um, my kids will do it for her. Uh, now, here's what's beautiful about that. When she's in a culture, it comes out of her. When you and I are in Christ, it comes out of us. We don't try to be like Jesus. We become like Jesus by being in his presence. So don't you want to become more beautiful, more splendid, more magnificent, more loving, more kind, more generous, etc.? Don't you want to be those things? That is not a to-do list. That's a reflection of God. And so the way that we become those things is simply by being in him. And that's what he is. And then we become more and more like him. We don't become more like Jesus by following a list of rules. It's by being in his presence, soaking in who he is, and then who he is comes out of us. And this is our deliverance and salvation. Our life calling is to be a good idol and a bad God. I recommend for all of you, don't be a good God. Just let's all, you know, I don't know, we do a huddle. And let's all uh, stop trying to be God. Let's just not do that. We, we would make bad gods, so let's not even try. You know, stop it. Uh, so let's not be gods anymore, but let's sign up to bear God's image as his idols. It's going to revolutionize our life and change the world around us. If we sign up, if we shift our job description from being gods to being idols. And then we're even going to treat our ethnicity and gender and economic status or whatever else. It'll have its right place in our hearts. It'll still be valuable, but it'll have its right place in our hearts. And we'll be liberated from earthly categories because now we're defined by our Father because we seek to reflect his image instead of ours. We're going to look like him. As I said at the beginning, in conclusion, humans have made every idol. Idols are, by definition, man-made. It's interesting, by the way, in the Old Testament, whenever an altar was set up, whenever God commanded an altar be set up, he always said, make that altar out of uncut stones, natural stones, stones that he made. Because he knows our propensity to make idols out of things, to, to chop and chisel and to make something that we would like. He says, no, no, just use the raw materials that I made. Because there's something in the human heart. This is Calvin des describes our heart as an idol-making factory. I mean, it's just what we do. It's, you know, it's how we roll. Um, so, uh, we have a propensity to make idols. Our freedom, love, is, fulfills the first command, that we should love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Faith fulfills this second command that we're talking about today. That I choose to live by faith. I choose to see you as 
you describe yourself. I choose to see me as you describe me. I choose to see my neighbor as you describe them. I choose to see my circumstances according to what you say about those circumstances. I have laid down being God and interpreting this world. I'm going to let you do that, and I'm simply going to reflect what you say is true about any given moment or any given person. And in that is our liberty. We're set free from distortions that put us into bondage and divide us from one another. By faith, we believe what the Bible says and that honors him and it liberates us from small thinking and we discover a God that is truly Lord and Savior. So let me ask you then, what false images need to be torn down by faith in your heart it's interesting how the Bible tells us to deal with idols. It doesn't say to negotiate with them, to say, you know, you've really, it's not been good what you've been doing. There's no discussions. What, do you know what you do with an idol? You chop it down. You tear it out. You don't negotiate. It's not a process. It's a decisive decision. I will not bow down to this false image. I carry around, to my embarrassment, so many false images of God. I'll come into a moment, and I'll have a false image of who God is in that moment. And God wants me to be set free from that by repenting. So what false images need to be torn down for you? Here's what I would like us to do. We're going to sing a song. No, we're not. We're going to worship for a minute through singing. And then I would like us to do something uh, a little active. And I would like to invite the worship team, uh, the prayer team is going to come forward. And we're going to invite you to come up and to do two things. To, to, as a statement, you don't have to come up, don't worry. Nobody's going to, this is all free choice stuff. But you get, to, uh, you get to come up and do two things. Say, I confess Jesus to be my Lord, he's my God, and I devote myself to living in his image. I confess him to be God, and he is the image that I want to be in. I don't want other images. I want to, be in, I want to live my life in his image, commandment one and commandment two. I'm going to forsake false gods and false images by saying, you're my God, and I choose to live, uh, I, I choose you to be the image that I reflect. You okay with that? So you get to think about that during the worship song. If we could have the worship team come forward, I'd like to pray for us. And then afterwards, I'll come up again, and then we'll kind of lead you through that moment. And I really believe that this can be a decisive moment for you and I. Just stay with me for another 30 seconds. This can be a moment where you settle in your heart who your God is, and who you're going to spend your life reflecting. This can be a moment that I think will be significant for you, for our community. Let's stand up together, and I'd like to pray for us. Father, I thank you so much for the freedom that we have in you, the freedom to finally throw off not just false gods, but false images of who you are.
I thank you for the truth of your word. And I thank you that that truth brings us freedom. Freedom from deception, freedom from small thinking, freedom from false images. And so I ask on behalf of my friends that this would be a moment of clarification. This would be a moment that we would clarify in our heart that you are the only God worthy of our worship and we seek to live in reflection of you. Thank you, Father.